0: Hey, real quick before we go in, just an announcement. If you're one of our 24-7 uh, prayer warriors and you get the email weekly, let me just give you an announcement. We've made a change on the format of that format of that, that literally doesn't affect you at all, but just so you know, uh, we've discovered as we try to keep that thing updated and as we try to keep it in our normal rhythms as a staff, uh, it, it's just more realistic for us to do one uh, kind of monthly major change update because of the nature of the prayer request we're putting in there, um, the reality is when I ask you to pray certain things for the church, I don't know a new way to word that every week. Uh, to, you know, and and, that, and and the ten minutes I'd give to trying to find a new way to word that single request every week are ten minutes away from something else that actually needs to be done. When that request is just clear, pray for unity and fellowship in the church. That's what Scripture says. So, uh, if you get that email, here's the deal: every month. There will be major updates pertaining to that month. I'll write a new letter to give you a direction for the month at the beginning of the month. The whole we'll th- see some differences. Uh, we are still going to send it to you every week so that it doesn't get. You don't have to go. Oh my goodness! It's the third week of August, and I can't find that email that came to me on the first week. We're going to send it to you every every week just like we normally do. So it's there. It keeps it refreshed. And if there's something specific. Like at the beginning of June, we're asking you to pray for sports camp, and clearly, well, sports camp's come and gone. Well, we'll take it off, so that way it's not just there perpetually. But just so you know, there's nothing weird going on. We're still keeping that updated, but we've just realized it's a little, probably more accurate for us to try to keep it updated on a monthly basis rather than to refresh it every single week and try to do that. So appreciate those of you who pray, and if you don't, uh, if you're not part of the 24-7 prayer chain, please continue to do so. So uh, that said, here is the challenge as we come to how we're going to close out Daniel tonight. And, and last week, to me, it was illustrated it perfectly. Every week when I prepare to preach, part of the ultimate goal of my study as I work through the text is to discern, and there's different ways, different pastors. What's the main point? What's the thrust of the text? At the end of the day, it's this. My job is to take us through the text so So we together understand what is the message God is trying to communicate, and what response does that message call for? What action, application in our lives does it call for? The challenge with that in a book like Daniel, where you get a lot of end times prophecy with a lot of rabbit trails branching off, is that there's certain things, like case in point this last Sunday, the the thrust of Daniel 12 is a call for you and I to endure, by heeding his word, living out a life of faithfulness. That's the thrust of the whole text. But then you got stuff in there like 1,290 days, which if you're a math person, you added that up and realized that's 43 months, not 42 months, which is three and a half years. So what's the extra 30 days? But then you got to make it another 45. Okay, well, that, that's not really key to the point of the text. Point of the text is if you make it to day 1,335, you've endured. If you give up on day 1,289, you've not endured. So part of, part of that is the challenge of preaching through the prophecy passages in Daniel, that uh, what we're going to do tonight, at least part of tonight, my, my aim is to hopefully, if you've got some leftover major, what on earth was that? I'm, I'm going to try to help clarify it. You got some nice study notes tonight to help you out with. So uh, here's we're going to start. First half is prophecy, and what are the major prophecy things that you and I see in Daniel? Now to help, I've got some visuals tonight. Uh, when you and I think of King David, Israel under King David and King Solomon, uh, you're, uh, you're gonna, it's going to be all of, all of this boundary, all of the green, the purple, the yellow, this part up here. This is a place that wasn't ruled by David and Solomon, but was under Solomon's influence. This is Israel at its highest peak of rule. Of course, we know after Solomon, the kingdom's going to split You're going to have the northern kingdom of Israel made up of 10 of the tribes, the southern kingdom of Judah made up of Judah and Benjamin, and you're going to have certainly Levites down here and then some rogue Levites up here. Uh, This is the kingdom for um, everything after Solomon. Now, in, in this time, let me come back, in this time, ultimately, 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire, which is Nineveh, they're going to come and be used by God to drag off All of the Israelites disperse them over the nations and Israel comes, the northern kingdom comes to an end as a response to her idolatry. Remember, northern kingdom never has a good king. It's all bad, always. Judah gets a couple good kings and a lot of bad kings. So when you come into the reign of Josiah, who remember under the reign of Josiah, there's gonna at least be a certain level of revival where God says, I will hold off my discipline hand on Judah, but it's still coming, just not in your lifetime, Josiah. Josiah's death battling Egypt is what sets up uh, Babylon coming down to ultimately take control and will set up the events of you. So essentially what you're looking at here, here's Samaria, and this is the kingdom of Judah. This is Israel when Daniel's born. This is Israel in his childhood. Here's what's going to change when he's a teenager. Here's the Babylonian Empire. Uh, now, this is a little deceptive. It's not because, uh, um, well, I won't say that. Hang on. This is Babylon Empire. Here's Jerusalem. When Babylon comes and sacks them and takes them into exile, they're going to follow this route all the way over here to Babylon. So Daniel at 16 makes a long journey, 15, 16, somewhere in there, and ends up here in Babylon hundreds of miles away from his home and from his family. You can see the former region of Assyria up here. There's Nineveh. Uh, here's, again, Jerusalem down here. So this is the Babylonian empire, which when we come to prophecy, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, the key prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, if you'll remember, Nebuchadnezzar, he has the, vi- the dream that troubles him. And he's decided that not only do his, dr- his fortune tellers, not only do his his aides have to interpret it. They've got to tell him the dream without knowing it. He needs to know that they really are in tune with, in his mind, the gods. None of them can do it. Uh, he's going to have all of them killed. Daniel, of course, it says in chapter 2, Daniel, Ratchet, Meshach, and Abednego, they all get together and pray. God gives Daniel knowledge of what the dream is, the interpretation. He comes into the king, says, I can do it. You had a dream of a giant, glorious statue of a man golden head, silver chest and arms, bronze belly and thighs, iron legs and feet. And you saw this brilliant statue. You saw a stone that was cut out with no human hands. And this stone came and shot itself at the statue. It obliterated all of the statue. And then this stone landed in the earth and it grew to a mountain That filled the entire earth. So that's your dream. And then he walks through and interprets it. So on your study sheet, I've given you kind of the interpret. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, here's what you've seen. You've seen the rest of the major world powers that touch Israel, the people of God, until God comes and sets up his permanent eternal kingdom. Says the the head of gold uh, is you. It's you, Nebuchadnezzar. It's the Babylonian empire it's it's beautiful it's 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 powerful the chest of arms and silver that will be the medo persian empire and if there's some overlap of dates there by the way that's because uh, that's because i've calculated the dates from when that empire started not necessarily from like when babylon conquered israel when persia conquered you can figure that out by just seeing when When did Persia conquer Babylon? Well, whenever Babylon ended, you can look at that date and go there. So that's the reason there's some overlap. So the Medo-Persian Empire just reminds you that the two arms hint at, because we'll see this in every subsequent prophecy in Daniel about Persia, there is a dual nature to the Persian Empire because it's a dual ethnic empire. It's the Medes and the Persians. And for most of history, the Mede Empire was the more powerful of the two, and it's going to be under Cyrus that he's able to take the smaller of it, Persia, win the crown, and through his orchestrating, let it... Again, we call it the Persian Empire, not the Median Empire. For accurate, we call it the Medo-Persian Empire, but Persia gets top billing because they will become the most powerful in that place, and, and so hence, you've got the two arms there. You've got the belly and thighs of bronze... And it represents the Greek Empire, and you'll remember again as we go through what part of what's highlighted about the Greek Empire is the speed with which the Greek Empire will conquer the known world, because in ten years Alexander the Great will go from being crowned king of Macedon or Macedonia, all the way clear out to the Indus River Valley uh, in in India, in what's modern day India. He'll he'll do it all in a period of ten years. And so there is a speed, hence the belly and thighs, because what are two of the most critical muscles for a person to run fast? It would be your core and your legs. That's how a person runs fast. Then you've got legs of iron and feet of iron and clay speaking to something's power and strength, and then the feet of iron and clay referencing a mixed nature. Well, this would be the Roman Empire. That's going to come. And In addition in there, it'll mention that specifically in that passage that the toes, it doesn't give a number, but we all know how many toes are on a human foot. It's ten. If you don't have ten, something's happened to you. And you'll have to go ask your parents why you don't have ten. But normally you got ten. Ten's not mentioned, but toes are mentioned. And, and, and there's some who think that even this the fact that toes are mentioned is a reference to what we'll see here in a second, the next prophetic chapter, to the fact that out of the Roman Empire come these ten horns, these ten kings. So some see that as a reference. Uh, there. The, the stone cut without human hands, we, we know that this ultimately, this is the eternal kingdom of God, and there are certain aspects that are significant. A stone cut out with the aid of human hands means something that is done supernaturally. This is a divine stone. Not only is it cut out without human hands, it becomes a great mountain. Mountains in this, especially in Babylon, mountains would have been referenced to the dwelling place of God. So a supernatural stone obliterates the kingdoms of men and, be, and sets up the dwelling place of God, which fills up the whole earth. It conquers all of it. And we know this is the eternal kingdom of God. Now, interestingly enough, as you walk through and think about those metals, with each empire, as you move forward and progress, through human history, each empire subsequently is a less valuable, glorious metal and a weaker metal. You can see that play out in human history today. There's in some ways we see ourselves as so wise, so smart, and, and so advanced. And yet in other ways, for all our advancedness, all our progress, we are unbelievably savage, weak, and frail. And far less... Uh, oh... I think we're far less ingenious, right? pastor I served under, the first church I served under, he talked about um, when they were he was visiting Egypt and they were in the, the Great Pyramid going through those tunnels, and it, it all of a sudden occurred to him just how cramped those tunnels are, and that if it caved in, he's, he's a goner. And whoever was with him who'd been in there noticed this, and he leaned over and said, uh, he said, this has been standing for a... Quite a few thousand years. I don't I don't think you're in any danger today. So we still don't know how they built the pyramids. And they did it without modern cranes that built the skyscrapers. So uh, the energies. We'll keep moving. That's Daniel two. That's the first of the key prophecies. Nebuchadnezzar, vision to Nebuchadnezzar, or at least the first of the recorded prophecies we get in the book of Daniel. Let me preface it that way. There may be others that we don't know about, but they weren't recorded for our sake. Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and part of the reason it's this glorious statue, in contrast to what we're about to see, is this is the world history from man's perspective, the glory of man's kingdoms. In contrast to when you come into Daniel 7, Daniel 7 is a vision Daniel has, and he looks out, you'll remember the sea is prophetic imagery that pictures the chaos and the wild nature of humankind, uh, the unpredictability, the danger. When you think of a wild foaming sea storming, uh, that's, that's the picture there. Out of the sea, out of the chaos of humankind come four beasts. Say beasts, right, because now we're seeing it from God's perspective. From man's perspective, our kingdoms are glorious. From God's perspective, they're beasts of sin. So now we're seeing from God's perspective, and we see four beasts. The first beast is, a, is like a lion with wings of an eagle. This is, again, the Babylonian empire. And, and if, you, if you remember back, if you look at kind of the, the animal seal on things from Babylon, it's a lion with wings. Now, it says in that passage, the wings are plucked, which most take as a reference to specifically Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, because really, Nebuchadnezzar, even though there's a couple kings after him, he essentially is the Babylonian Empire. Because really, once he dies, it is a it is a straight shot down uh, to the commode uh, until Persia will will ultimately take them take them out. And Daniel even tells them in chapter two, "You are the head of gold." So the the wings being plucked seems to be a reference to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation in Daniel four, where he where God humbles him and he makes that great confession that there is only one who is sovereign over all of the kingdoms of the world, and that is the Lord God Almighty, the God of Daniel. So first beast is Babylon. The second beast looks like a bear with one side raised up higher than another. It looks like a bear who needs a chiropractor is what it looks like. And the reason for that... uh Uh-oh. My clicker's... My clicker's dead. Can you move me to the next slide? Oh, yeah, we're working again. Uh, the, the, the lopsided bear, so a vicious, thick animal with one side higher than another, I told you, Remember? Persian Empire is made up of two parts, Medes, Persians. The Persian part is the greater of the two parts. So you see this again. Why is it a lopsided bear? It's one empire, but it's got two distinct parts to it, and one is clearly greater than another. And you'll see here, here's the Median Empire, here's the Persian Empire. This is clearly bigger, but this is the part that's going to become more powerful under Cyrus. And you can see then, because it tells you about that bear, that that bear comes crawling out of the sea with three ribs. And some choose not to take a guess at all what that is. Others see that that's likely a reference to the fact that there are three major kingdoms that the Persian Empire conquers to become the most powerful empire of its day. First, it conquers the kingdom of Lydia up here in what we know as uh, modern-day Turkey. It conquers Babylon right here. And then it will ultimately go down and conquer Egypt. And thus, the Persian Empire will look like this at its height. At its height, when the Jews will ultimately be released, if they want, to come back to Jerusalem. Babylon's here. Here's Susa. Here's Persopolis. This is actually the kingdom uh, of, of the capital of Persia, but this is also a major biblical city here in Persia. So this is what it looks like. The Persian Empire will come and dominate. That is the second beast. The third beast, if you'll remember, is a leopard with four wings and four heads. A leopard with four wings, well, a leopard is a fast, swift beast, powerful. Uh, a leopard with four wings would be an exceedingly fast beast. It's kind of the difference if, you, uh, if you've if you ever seen the, the movie from the 90s, The Sandlot, Uh, Benny the Jet Jackson, he goes and gets his PF flyers. He doesn't run in normal shoes. He gets his PF flyers to outrun the dog. It's the idea with them. They're not just fast. They're fast upon fast upon fast. And under Alexander, Alexander will literally go. Here's Alexander's kingdom when he's put on the throne. 10 years later, this is all of his kingdom. It's fast. That's fast to conquer that much territory when your primary... Means of transportation are feet and horses. Maybe throw some elephants in there. I'm not sure. There probably were some elephants, their version of a tank. Um, here's modern day India. Uh, you got the Hindu Kush mountains. Obviously, this is covering Iraq, Iran, uh, over into Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan. Uh, and, but remember that leopard has four heads because Alexander's going to conquer all of this. Legend has it he begins to cry because there's nothing more for him to conquer, and he's going to make his way back home. He's going to be here in Babylon when he dies at the age of 33, suddenly and mysteriously. And what happens after that? He's got uh, he's got um, if I remember right, he's got a brother who was deemed incompetent and therefore not allowed to the throne. He had one son who was murdered and an illegitimate son. Sorry, an illegitimate son brother who was murdered, illegitimate son who was refused, and a legitimate son who was born actually, his wife was pregnant when he died, born after his death, and he was murdered several years later. So that his kingdom, and this, this is uh, me quoting you out of Daniel 11, his kingdom does not pass to his offspring. Instead, his kingdom is divided into four parts, four heads of the leopard. It's divided into four parts to four of his generals. And this is the significance of the third beast. Now, we'll get more expansion on this in a second, so I'll, I'll leave it there. Then the fourth beast is described as, it's not described as any known earthly animal. Instead, the description is more about how terrifying, words like dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong, iron teeth, and it speaks of an empire that will, that will raise its head and will, will, will bring about a conquering unseen in world history. And this is true. This is the Roman Empire, and at the height of the Roman Empire in the days of Jesus, it's all of this. Now, the different colors for you here have nothing to do with what is Roman Empire and what's not. It's just different ways in which uh, Roman rule was was brought about, whether it was a senatorial province or an imperial province. But all of this is the Roman Empire. And of course, at its height, it'll come up even as high as modern-day England and, and we will come into some of these other parts. This is the Roman Empire. Now, Daniel 7 goes further. Than what daniel 2 does daniel 7 says that out of the roman empire will arise 10 horns that the beast 10 horns come up on the beast and remember horn and prophetic imagery a horn just like a head can be a king a horn can be a king and in this sense a king and a kingdom are really synonymous, right? I mean, we all get that. The president of the United States is supposedly supposed to represent the United States. The king of Britain is supposedly supposed to represent the United Kingdom, the on down the line, right? The theory is the head of state is a representative of the the actual nation. Uh, So these horns represent kings, and and the idea is these 10 horns come up And the implication and the way that Daniel 7 describes them is that these ten horns all exist simultaneously. Now here's where, and if you go back and we're looking at Daniel 7, this is where all of a sudden we begin to go, well, wait a minute. We've seen the fulfillment of each part of these beasts thus far, but we've never seen out of the Roman Empire ten distinct kings and kingdoms coexisting all at once which is where you start to go, if we haven't seen it happen yet, then that must mean we're looking at something that has yet to occur. So this is where we make a jump in looking at these prophecy passages from history that has already occurred and set in stone to something that hasn't yet happened, something we're looking for in the future, that there will come a point where somehow out of what is the remnants of Rome, there will come a point where there are 10 kingdoms reigning simultaneously with each other. And in the midst of the rule of these 10 kingdoms, remember back to Daniel, 8, Daniel 7 there, it's on your sheet, a little horn will arise. Meaning you've got these 10 kingdoms and seemingly coming from nowhere, not on anybody's radar, there will come this small horn, this other ruler. And remember the description of this ruler. This horn is gonna come up Three of the ten horns, so three of the ten kingdoms, they don't want this guy. And it says this guy rips them out from the roots. Well, if you pull a horn out by the root, that would be symbolic for complete and total destruction and conquering. So you're going to have this little horn who comes up out of nowhere, who rises to power. Three of those ten kingdoms oppose him. He's going to conquer those three, and the implication is the other seven are on board, They're going to go on board with him. It says that this horn possesses eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth uttering great boasts, meaning that this horn, eyes, he's going to possess a knowledge, a savviness. We've seen those terms. That's part of why Antiochus Epiphanes is used as an example. He's, He's a person of political intrigue. There's a savviness, an insight, a cunning, a charisma, Seemingly a supernatural knowledge, we'll see further when this, when, th- when this little horn's brought up later on in Daniel 9, that there will be a satanic power behind. So he's got a supernatural knowledge, not like God, but, but beyond what you and I would have even as the most cunning of people, and a mouth that utters great boasts. You'll remember in the same passage, though, he gets a picture of the heavenly throne room where he sees the Ancient of Days, God Himself, and if we're being specific, thinking about the triune God, we're we're probably most accurately seeing the Father depicted here, the person of the Father. He calls the heavenly courts into session, and while this little horn is making boast against God, ultimately, he's judged and dealt with. And it's in that same vision where the question is, well, who will rule? And it says, one like a son of man coming on the clouds. And of course, son of man becoming a messianic title, Jesus' most favorite. In fact, what was the point that out, outraged the Pharisees at his trial? When he, they said, tell us, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And he said, I see, behold, I see the son of man standing at the right hand of the Father in glory. He claims deity for himself. And so you see again, you see a fulfillment in Daniel 7, of what was seen in Daniel chapter two, but in Daniel seven, we're seeing it from a different perspective, a little bit more of a fuller perspective, a perspective that includes that which has yet to come, 10 kingdoms ruling simultaneously, among which a ruler arises, uh, who, who has a supernatural in, uh, insight, who has a blasphemous mouth, who, who will conquer three of those kingdoms, who will, who will ultimately be himself be destroyed, And then the kingdom of the Son of Man ushered in. This is Daniel 7. When you move into Daniel 8, when you move into Daniel 8, if you remember, Daniel 8 is a a different vision, and it's specifically a vision looking at two of the four beasts from Daniel 7, two of the beasts. Now, they're not the same imagery in Daniel 8. it's, It's a ram and a goat but we know from the interpretation the angel gives to Daniel that the, there's a ram who's got two horns, one horn larger than another. That takes us back to Persia. Persians are more powerful than the Medians, but one empire. So you've got this ram that moves, moves powerfully, uh, conquers the known world. It says in, in Daniel 8, 4, the ram budded westward, northward, and southward. Let's go back here for a second. Notice where... Persia attacked westward, northward, southward. That's where they went. I know there's an arrow here going east, but really they they didn't really go east. They already had already had that. Um, so this is the Persian Empire. You come then down into it talks about a, a goat which is moving so fast its feet does not touch the ground with one giant conspicuous horn it comes up mightily wrathfully rams into the ram and, and 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 destroys the ram shatters the ram horns. Well, this is this is talking about uh, the the speed and quickness and the conspicuous horn of Alexander. It says this conspicuous horn right as soon as he gains his a power is is crushed, is, is rooted out. And in his place, it talks about four horns that come up to the four corners of heaven. Got north, east, south, west. You got all of it. Four corners of heaven. Four divisions of the empire. Now, from that point, Daniel chapter 8 makes mention that out of, out of those four horns, there comes another small horn. Again, this is why we're doing this tonight so I can make sure I have not left any of you confused. Daniel 7, so follow me here. In Daniel 7, the small horn of Daniel 7 is is who we know as the Antichrist, the beast, the man of lawlessness, to quote three different New Testament passages. The little horn of Daniel 8 is not the Antichrist, the beast, the man of lawlessness. The little horn of Daniel 8 is Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes? That ruler that's going to come out of the Seleucid kingdom, all of this green, who will eventually come to rule over this area and who will, who will in a way that has never been seen prior to this, and, and maybe, um, this, is, uh, this is my opinion, so don't quote this as gospel, but I don't know that any that has ever been seen uh, again, save maybe what Hitler and the Nazis did to the Jews. Uh, a, a level of persecution and hatred for the people of Israel because they are the people of God. He unleashed a brutal persecution. So in Daniel eight, Daniel eight, the little horn is not the same as the little horn in Daniel seven. Daniel seven, it's the Antichrist. Daniel eight, it's Antiochus the fourth, Epiphanes, and Daniel eight describes a lot about him. It describes describes um He's skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree. He will prosper, perform. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Through shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed. He will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they're at ease. He will oppose the prince of princes, but he'll be broken without human agency. All of those things describe Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, and we mentioned this when we were in Daniel 8. Oftentimes in prophecy, you will see a, the historical fulfillment of Daniel 8 has already come and gone. It's Antiochus Epiphanes. But remember, why is Antiochus highlighted so much? Part of it is for his hatred and persecution on, on the people of Israel. But part of it is because Antiochus Epiphanes is a type, is a forerunner, is an example to us of the kind of person the Antichrist will be. So when you read what I just read you out of Daniel 8, that Antiochus Epiphanes was was insolent, skilled in intrigue, his power will be mighty, but there was not by his own, meaning there's some evil supernatural power behind him, destroyed to an extraordinary degree through shrewdness. You can take all of that. So remember, little horn of Daniel 8, not Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes. That's the description of him, fulfilled in him. He's come and gone, he's dead, and I don't know, he, he, he's dead. His bones are dust. You can't go visit. It's not one of the historical sites they take you on on a trip to Israel. But all of those describers will be true of the little horn of Daniel 7, but to an even greater degree... Because the Antichrist will be more skilled, more shrewd, more powerful, have more power behind him from the powers of darkness than any ruler that this world has ever seen uh, from a human perspective. So just remember, that's, that's where it can get confusing. But Daniel 7, the little horn is who? Daniel 8, it's who? All right. Is Daniel 8, little horn, the Antichrist? Great. Okay. Maybe I'm not going to mess you up too bad. Just want to be clear. Okay. Then you flip over and we got to Daniel 9. And you remember in Daniel 9, uh, Gabriel brings, brings Daniel... Remember Daniel 9, Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. He realizes the 70 years that were prophesied for the people of God to be in exile are about to come to an end. They're not ready. And so he, he has this amazing prayer of, of repentance and petition. And in, the, in response to that prayer, God sends Gabriel. Gabriel shows up and says, Daniel, I've got a message for you. you you've been praying about God's response to the 70 years the literal 70 years you are fixing to have been in captivity, I'm going to come and, and, and what God's told me to tell you is about the 77s that remain until God's full work is finished for your people. You're focused here, praise God, you're heeding and responding to the word. God's chosen to tell you something far bigger than just the 70 years. And so you'll remember Daniel 9 is when you get Daniel nine twenty four says, 70 weeks have been decreed. Now... It's listed as 70 weeks because literally it's 77s. But if you and I were to read that, that reads a little confusing. 77s and there's seven sevens and 62 sevens and then a final seven, that gets confusing. However, I think for you having to listen to me and me talk out loud, it's more confusing for me to talk about 70 years and 70 weeks and seven weeks and 62 weeks and one week and the weeks are actually seven sets of seven years so it's easier, there's, it's, your Bible's not wrong to translate it weeks. It's, it's designed to be kind of prophetically and poetic, but to me, to speak it out loud, just, I feel like I'm gonna lose everybody and I'm not only gonna lose you, I'm gonna lose my own mind trying to keep track of did I use day, week, year, month, score, um, decade, whatever else is in there. So 70 weeks are literally 77s. Now remember, prophecy's got imagery. When we say 77s, so 70 sets of seven. A set of seven is symbolic for seven literal years. So a set of seven or a week is symbolic for a set of seven literal years. So when he says 70 weeks or 77s have been decreed, what he is saying literally is, Daniel, there are 490 literal years that have been decreed regarding your people. You're, you're thinking about the end of Jeremiah's 70-year prophecy. I'm telling you, there's, there's a new 70 times seven years prophecy. And of course, he says that in that 490-year stretch, the, holy, the, 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 the people in the holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. And when we walked through that, so those six things have to happen in this 490-year literal year period. Now you go, and it's a whole. So you're going to hang with me for a second. Of those six things, and this, if you go, well, I want more information on that. Go back and find the sermon. It's a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, actually, somewhere in there. It's July 2nd. There you go. Go look up the sermon from July 2nd. Um, one of those six things has, in fact, already happened, to make atonement for sin. That's Jesus dying on the cross. Depending on how you want to, uh, one of the statements to seal up vision and prophecy, there's, there's kind of two different ways you can, you can take it, both of which are valid biblically. Depending on which way you go, that either has or has not been fulfilled. So we'll call it one and a half of the six things have been fulfilled. Four and a half of those things have not happened yet. Sin is still occurring on this earth. Everlasting righteousness has not been ushered in. There are there so some of these things. So this automatically tells us if you and I are just casually reading it, some of what's being talked about here in in these four hundred and ninety years hasn't happened yet. Some has, some hasn't. So he says, You're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or seven sevens and 62 sevens. For those of you who are math people, there will be 69 total weeks divided, sorry, total years divided out into. 49 years and 434 years now I mentioned and I'll go back in it because it is pertinent but you can go back and listen in the sermon what decree are we talking about and just just candidly with you um, there is debate on which decree were among biblical scholars is is talked about uh, some of that debate is irrelevant because to accept that as true you would you would have to take an opinion of the book of Daniel that says it's none of its prophecy it's all some guy posing as Daniel writing after the fact of it happening what it's clearly not what we hold to because that would make god a liar and that's that's off the table so i haven't even mentioned those because it's not worth it for the sake of our understanding as believers who hold to the fact that the word of god is supernaturally and divinely authored by the holy spirit inspiring men and god doesn't inspire people to write uh, with with flaws he wrote his authoritative perfect word so that leaves you then, in the category of what it could be with one of two options. Uh, one of the options is the decree from Artaxerxes I to Ezra to restore the temple, and that occurred in five, uh, sorry, 458 BC. You find that in Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 26. That's one option. If you take that option then you're going you're gonna to count these years as 365-day solar years, and it's going to bring you to somewhere in between, depending on what date that decree went out, AD 26 to 27. Now, we know for a fact there's there's a very specific criteria for determining what day Jesus died. has to be where... 14 Nisan fell on the specific day, Friday. It has to be in between the governance of Pontius Pilate. When you add these factors together, it is only possible for Jesus to have died in either 30 AD or 33 AD. One of those two years he died. And you say, well, pastor, why don't we know exactly which one of the year it is? Because it's not like all of the very precise birth uh, certificate records of the Roman Empire have made it to today, and God didn't see fit to put Jesus' birth certificate in Scripture so we know a range in terms of what year he was born and we have a range in terms of what year he died and we know that when Jesus stepped into his public ministry, he was around 30 years of age. It means he could have been 30, could have been 29, could have been 32. He was around 30 years of age. So if you go with Ezra, it takes you right up to 26 or 27, which would imply that Jesus died in AD 30 Well, what would have happened in 26 or 27 AD? It would have been the baptism of Jesus, the start and the public announcement that the Messiah has come, if someone's paying attention. The other option is on March 5th, 445 BC. uh, It's recorded in Nehemiah 2, verse 5, Artaxerxes I gave Nehemiah, uh, it doesn't say it was a decree, but it doesn't take much logic to understand. If he, It says he sent Nehemiah with a letter. Well, what do you think that letter was? It's, it's a decree that said Nehemiah had the right and had the money to buy the supplies to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and secure it as a city, a work that was actually stopped Decades prior, because the people of Persia who didn't like Israel that were living around Jerusalem said, oh, no, no, king, don't you dare let them do this. And he said, nope, they can't do it. If you take that date and you, and you understand these years to be what scholars would call a prophetic year, meaning a year composed of 360 days, you say, well, what's a prophetic year? Well, let me just try to make it real simple for you. It's the idea that when you look at a lot of the different ways certain numbers are calculated in prophecy, they seem to come back to uh, months that are, that are made of 30 days. Well, we, obviously, we know our calendar, 30 days have September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31, say February, well, why is that? Because our calendar is built on a solar year, this time it takes for our earth to go from here back to the same spot around the sun. But there's all different ways. There's lunar calendars, which are a few days less. You, you can have a calendar made up of 30-day months. Uh, the 42 months equaling three and a half years, the reign of the beast, that's 30-day months if you calculate it out. 1260 days are... So when we say prophetic year, it's just this idea that there seems to be in some prophecies a counting of months by 30 days rather than, well, it depends on which month of the year it is. If you take that from the time of that decree, March 5th, 455 BC, to rebuild the walls, and you take, four, you take based on 30-day 30 30 months, um, the 460 days the 483 years gosh i got to keep my math straight and all this if you take that out it drops you off on april sorry on march 30th ad 33 which would be precisely palm sunday the week jesus dies if he dies in 33 ad not only that, but if you're familiar at all with the, the, the guy who became a quasi-astronomer and has done all the Star of Bethlehem stuff, that presentation, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it all. You can look it up. It's called Bethlehem Star. Uh, he got into, and essentially you can trace the star charts back, right? Like the star charts are what they are, and so you can trace that back. And he's done all this tracing. It's incredible to what he thinks is probably the an actual astro, astronomical event in the sky composed of Jupiter and Saturn and and a a certain star that would have been the Bethlehem star. When he traces, because there's astronomical, not astrological, but astronomical things tied to Jesus' crucifixion. When he traces those star charts back, he gets a precise date for the day of the crucifixion, April 3rd, 33 A.D., So if you're going to say, Pastor, which of these decrees do you tend to fall to? I tend to fall to the decree to Nehemiah. Could I be wrong? Certainly. Either way you go, it's going to ultimately pan out right. Uh, The key question is just, what year did Jesus die? And if we knew for sure if it was 30 or 33 AD, problem solved. We know he died in one of those two years, so that doesn't somehow compromise the integrity of the Scriptures. It just means we don't have his, again, we don't have his birth and death certificate. Scripture didn't see fit to include that in there, but it gave us a precise range to look at it. Here's the point. Literally right on the dot from what God told Daniel, when this decree goes out, count the clock. And when you get to this point, the Messiah Prince will be cut off, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and sometime sometime after the... Sometime after the 69 sevens, the Messiah gets cut off. The city will be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. Now, again, pay attention to that passage. There is a Messiah prince and a prince who is to come. Two different princes. Messiah prince, Jesus, the Messiah king, the prince who is to come. That's a reference to the little horn of Daniel seven, to whom we know as the man of lawlessness, the beast, the antichrist. Says the people of him who is to come, which was the Romans, they would come and in 70 AD they would obliterate Jerusalem and level the Temple Mount and drive the people out. And so then it says here in Daniel 9 So you've got these 69 sevens. When those 69 sevens are done, Jerusalem's rebuilt, the Messiah comes, the Messiah is cut off, meaning he dies. We know in that death from the New Testament, he makes atonement for sin then sometime in between that 69-7, that 69th week, and that 70th week, there's a gap. So the scriptures imply it here by saying things happen in between. So you've got 483 literal years, and then we've got a pause. And in that pause, Rome comes under General Titus, they conquer, they wipe out, uh, they wipe out Jerusalem. In fact, if you go to Rome, one, and down in the forum is Titus's arch, And some of the the, the pictures depicted on the arch are of the Romans tearing down the temple and driving out the Jews. We live right now in that in-between, which some scholars would call the age of the church, the, the age of the Gentile, because it seems we live in these days where by and large the Jewish people have completely and totally rejected the Messiah, their Messiah, and it's the Gentile world. We are the ones who have taken up belief in Christ and then and comprise the majority of the church in the world. So we live in between these two. But then it says, he, meaning the prince who is to come, that's the Antichrist, the little horn of seven, he will make a firm covenant with the many. This is one of the, the pardon the pun, one of the many places, the many, is a reference to the Jews, to the, the people of Israel. He will make a covenant for one week. Well, what's one week? Seven years. Where do you get seven years of tribulation? Right here, for one week, seven years. But in the middle, what's in the middle? Three and a half years in. With how much remaining? Three and a half years left. Time times half a time. Forty-two months. Six different places in Scripture that's referenced. We saw it this last Sunday. He will put an end to the sacrifice. He'll put an end to the worship of of uh, the Jews and he will commit the abomination of desolation until his complete destruction, one that's already been decreed, is poured out and makes him desolate. So you find there, there is a final week that is yet to be fulfilled. This is the basis for where we understand there's a final seven-year tribulation period of human history in which the Antichrist will make a covenant of peace with the people of Israel. He will solve the problem of of peace in the Middle East that no human has, has figured out uh, since 1948 when the Jews returned to the land of Israel. And in the middle of it, he will he will spend three and a half years seeming like the people of Israel's best friend, and in the middle, he will, he will turn on them, and it will become a brutal persecution, according to Daniel tw- uh, 12, unlike anything that's ever been seen. Now, I know I'm running short on time, which is good, because we just covered these two, so it's simple. Daniel 11 through chapter 12, verse 4. If you don't have the handout from, I think, two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, there is a handout that we printed up that has a... a, 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 in, In those first 35 verses of Daniel 11, there are 135 historical prophecies that have already been fulfilled. We've got a handout that'll show you. Here's the verse. Here's the fulfillment. All of those prophecies have to do with ultimately the fourfold division of the Greek empire. And then it hones in on the king of the south, the Ptolemaic uh, Ptolemaic kingdom here in red, and the king of the north, this green kingdom, which is the Seleucid kingdom. It goes back and forth. Ultimately, it's going to focus in on the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. From verses 21 through 35, and then we find once you get to verse 36 that from verse 36 to verse 45, the things described there of that king were never were, were nothing. There's nothing that corresponds to the life of Antiochus Epiphanes, which is again a cue that we've moved for us. All of this was future for Daniel. For us, that's a clue. Verse 35 is where the fulfill where things have already been fulfilled. Verse 36 is things that have yet. To be fulfilled, it's future-oriented, and those verses talk about the character and and work of the Antichrist. Um, fills you in. We we walked through that, I believe, three uh, uh, three and four weeks ago. So, if you want more detail on that, I'd point you to to there. When you get to chapter twelve, verses one through three, we see the guaranteed deliverance, God's deliverance of the righteous people when you come into Daniel chapter 12, you get two questions. There's a question from the angel in verse six. Hey, when, when the events of this antichrist, when the events of this little horn who's gonna set himself up, when, when, the, when he steps in and, and, and commits the abomination of desolation, when things get really bad, when this persecution unlike anything ever before seen, how long will those things last? And God says, for time, times, half a time. Time times half a time. Time equals one year. So time one year times two year, half a time half a year three and a half years, which is in the middle. That's half of the the seventieth week. So that's how we understand that. And by the way, time times and half a time. Uh, that time frame of three and a half years. It's mentioned uh, twice, if not three times, in Daniel, and it's mentioned four times in the book of Revelation. Then verse eight, Daniel steps up and he says, how does all this finish? And of course, God says that there will be 1290 days after the abomination of desolation. Blessed is the one who keeps to the 1335 days. Now, remember, I told you Sunday, the point is you wanna make it, you wanna endure. That's the point. There is all sorts of speculation. Remember, if you take three and a half years That equals 42 months, but this is 43 months. So what goes on from, what's that extra month for? What happens in that time? And not only that, what happens in the additional 45 days after that? There's all sorts of speculation. The true, honest truth is, and there's speculation we can discuss, and I'll give you a little of it just here as we wrap, but the true, honest truth is we don't fully know what all's going to happen because God doesn't give us all the specifics. Now, what most will say is... From 1260 days, which is three and a half years, 42 months, to 1290 days, it could be that there's a certain battle taking place. It could be that there's kind of rounding up all of the Antichrist forces. It could be that there, there's there's a 30-day period in which it takes to reestablish the temple. Others will come and say that that 45-day period after 1335, uh, that's the point where the millennial kingdom of Jesus On this earth is set up, and you go, what's the millennial kingdom? That's a great question Daniel doesn't answer, but I'll answer it for you soon on a Wednesday night when we look at some other stuff for the end times. So I know if you got choir and you need to bounce out, I'm getting you done just before seven here if you need to. If not, here's what I'm going to do. You get a rare opportunity tonight. Do you have a question on any of this that you need me to clarify Because I I don't ever want to leave you confused about what the word of our Lord says. That is never God's intention. Even though there are things in here we don't fully understand, it's because God's not let us understand them, not because he's trying to confuse us and mess us up. In the back, I see the hand. So this this last set of your period talks a lot about God's (coughs) people. So in the last seven years, it talks a lot about God's people is that only the Jews or does that include all Christians in the context of Daniel, it would be the Jewish people because that's what Daniel, the focus of Daniel is concerned with. Now, obviously, when we come to the New Testament, if there is no, uh, if there's no rapture of the church prior to the seven years of tribulation and let's say tribulation, let's say it starts tomorrow then obviously we're still the people of God even though we're Gentiles that hasn't changed and if we make it to the end we'll be part of the people of like that's not changed but specific to Daniel's context and even when you go back to the angel's answer Daniel is Daniel's prayer life and focus is on the people of God Israel and the answer he gets is very specific to the people of God Israel so uh, as far as in that day, what will it... And, and, and by the way, too, in the seven years of tribulation, if there's, if there's some Gentile who cries out for salvation, obviously Jesus' blood is still good, and he's going to save the person that cries out in faith on who he is and what he's done. But specifically into the context, it's referencing Israel, which would take you further down. And again, we'll come back to it here. Uh, it's, on my, it's on my calendar for us to go through this fall. We'll go back to it, but that gets you into the idea of Revelations 144,000. 12,000 from each tribe, which seems to be a reflection of a mass, if not entire, turning of the rest of the Jewish people left to repentance in Jesus as their Messiah. Does that make sense? I have a question about those 10 kingdoms that you, what are rulers? The 10 horns. Yes. Is that a, um, thank you, is that a um, economic type, is that what we look at now, that this can be economic rulers, like there was a lot of discussion early on about the Trilateral Commission, do you, do you mean when you mean economic? Do you do you mean like geopolitical? Yes, rulers? yes, yes. Yeah, I, I I would understand it as being geopolitical rulers. I don't know that that means at that time there will only be ten like ten presidents in the world. Somehow all the all hundred ninety seven countries have morphed into ten. I, again, that's that's where we can speculate and have fun with that, and we can try to understand it based on things we see and are. And clearly, part of the implication from Scripture is the closer we get to these things, it's going to start to match up a little clearer. But I don't always dive into that in this space only because I think you, if you study church history, there have been several key moments in church history where the church has lined up all of these things with what's gone on in their world, yet here we are today and Jesus hadn't come back. So I just am careful to, to hold loosely. But yes, the idea of a horn would be geopolitical, economic nations, rulers. Um, and, and, and so the idea is that out of the old Roman Empire will come ten... And whether that's the old Roman Empire literally, which would mean European nations, or whether that's the old Roman Empire in some kind of character quality, there will come ten rulers. So, anything else? Oh, we got a couple. Is the Jewish nation shrinking? Is the Jewish nation shrinking today? Yes, and is that why, to me, 144,000 doesn't seem like a lot? So, Well, it's either one of two things. Certainly in the tribulation, the Jewish nation will shrink because the Antichrist will kill them off without mercy. That's part of what's talked about. So, th- so just for context, when, when he says in, in Daniel 12, when he says, in that day, there will arise a time of distress such has never occurred. Just to help visualize this for you, I want you, because most of you in here will get it, think how bad the Holocaust was for the Jews. That'll not, that will be, it will be worse. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what Scripture says. It will be worse. So certainly there will be a shrinkage at that time. So it's possible. It's a literal. uh, The debate around 144 is, is that a literal number? Literally 12,000 out of each tribe, not 12,001 and not 11,999? Or is that a a symbolic number that references a complete? So that would be the distinction there. It could be that it's literally 144,000 or Or the other way of understanding is that how whatever the number of Jews are, when they finally get to that point in tribulation, every one of them is going to turn to Jesus. So that when that trump blares and Jesus comes riding down on the white horse, anybody who is a Jew left on this world is is a follower of the Messiah. So there's one of two ways. As far as like today, literally, what is the Jewish population? I got no clue. I have not done any research on that whatsoever. I'm just curious because there have been so many Messianic Jews who have become completed Jews, and I'm just wondering if, if that's shrinking their nation. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And obviously, by the way, we live in a day and time where, you hear me say it, the majority of the Jewish people have rejected the Messiah. By no means do I want to imply that there's no Jewish believers. There are absolutely those who are ethnically Jewish who have confessed Jesus as Lord and are our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Is there another So you're saying that um, the Jews who have not confessed Christ, when, G- when Christ comes back, will recognize their Lord and will there? Yeah, at some point prior to his return, there will be this mass turning of Jews to go... I don't know that it's specific enough to say. I, I would say it's... it's, it's it, I mean, I guess it could be right out, but it seems to be in that three-and-a-half-year period, there's going to be this recognition of our Messiah came and we missed him as a mass. Um, in a way that you don't, again, you don't see reflected today. That's part of Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11 when people are, you know, Paul, by and large, the Jews seem to have rejected the gospel, but all these Gentiles are, are, are coming to faith in Christ. Why? Um, and Paul dives into a little bit of a different answer for a different thing there. But, but as far as the, is at the exact moment, I would tend to think it's sometime prior to the exact moment because at that exact moment... Um, there would be re- rejoicing as a, if if it was prior, but uh, so my speculation is somewhere in the three and a half years there's going to be. But again, you're asking me questions about stuff I don't know and haven't seen, so I'm trying to give you my best answer without also having to go stand before the Lord one day and go and be asked, Wes, why did you why did you say something dumb? So <laughs> my hesitancy is 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 only out of trying to be humble in how I answer and not saying something I'll regret one day when. I have to go back before the Lord and give account for what I teach. Is there another question? Anything specifically related? I realize there's probably a lot of end times questions, and we are going to get there. It's on, on the thing to do this fall. But is there anything specifically related to any of this? And Daniel, I just didn't want to leave anybody confused. In the very back, Preston has a question. We'll see what it is. Oh, Thanks. Uh, just what you had talked about in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, compared the two little horns, what what makes you say that that's, one's the Antichrist and the other one's... I'm just kind of throwing this out there as devil's advocate, but... Sure, because the horn of you, Daniel 7, we don't have any historical correspondence uh, to to him. And that horn, literally, when that horn is defeated, it's by the Son of Man and his coming kingdom. Well, that hasn't happened yet, so that horn hasn't arisen. When you come to Daniel 8, um, when you come to Daniel 8, listen to... So Daniel 8 describes there's the ram, then there's the goat with the giant horn. That horn falls off, four horns come up, and out of those four horns comes a small horn, verse 9, and it talks about the small horn and what all he does. When When Gabriel shows up, Gabriel says, the ram which you saw is the kings of Media and Persia, verse 20. 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken, uh, the broken and the four that, are, that arise in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In this latter period of their rule, when transgressions will have run their course, a king will arise. Literally, Gabriel tells us, that that little horn is is comes out of the four divisions of the Greek empire. So that's part of the difference too, as Gabriel directly says, this is who the ram is, this is who the goat is, this is who the big horn is, this is who the four horns are, and at a latter time, out of one of those four, this king arises. Does that make sense? All right. Wes, I've got a question here. Um, you, we talked specifically about the time, the amount of time from the decree to uh, Jesus uh, arriving. And my question is, how is it that the Jews miss that? I know they can count. What? Um, from a, like, direct firsthand account, I, I don't totally know. What I mean by that is, like, I'm not one of them who missed it, so I I couldn't tell you what they would say. Um, What seems to be the implication, though, when you get to, I mean, it's not just that. I, I think I always had this perception for a long time that Jesus showed up, came at a time no one was expecting. He spoke in these parables. We obviously have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history. Once you come to faith in Christ, you got the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, helping you understand. You know, it's just like, man, they they just missed it. Yeah, the reality is, if you go read the Gospels, and I I, I think I highlighted this, um, not that, anyway, if you go read the Gospels, it literally says, when the Magi from the East show up, all of Jerusalem is talking about it. And everybody knows that the Magi have shown up saying, we've seen an event in the sky that tells us a king of the Jews has been born. Where is he? And not only that, but when they show up in Herod's court... Now, this isn't directed, but it's going to get to your question. When they show up in Herod's court, Herod literally calls the Bible scholars out and says, hey, they want to know where the Messiah is going to be born. Tell them. And they proceed those scholars to quote the Old Testament verses saying it's going to be in Bethlehem. So you've got scholars who already read it and understood it. You've got all of a city abuzz. Bethlehem is not even a two-mile walk. And the implication is outside of the shepherds that nobody cares about who the angels showed up to and the magi, no one ever showed up. So I think the, the, the reality is, this is my opinion, based on Daniel's prayer in chapter nine, on one hand, Israel never struggled after exile with the idols of other nations. But on the other hand, I think the root issue of their sin never changed which is they never accepted God on his terms at his word. And so they are all looking for a physical deliverer to free them from Rome, which that idea really picked up steam in between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And that that 400-year period is where that idea really picked up steam among the Jews. And I just think flat out, it's a reminder to all of us God can make it plain as day. And in the pride of our hearts, in our own sin, in our own misplaced expectations, we can miss it all. And so to me, it's 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 a very humbling warning to realize you you can you can be a Bible scholar through and through. I would, I would, man, those guys living in the day of Jesus, those religious scholars could put me to shame in the Old Testament. And I'm not saying that to try to be humble, like they would quote you in the Hebrew, the first five books by memory. I can't quote you the first five books from memory in English, much less Hebrew. And that wouldn't be the limit of, and they missed it. And I I think it's just a reality of what God talks about all the time to them. I mean, think about uh, Stephen's defense when he is before the the Sanhedrin in Acts 7. You stiff-necked people, you hard-hearted people, that's just the frightening reality of, of, how, of how truly deep and hardened in their sin the vast majority of, of the people of Israel were at Jesus' coming. And the irony is Josephus, who's a Jew historian, not a Christ follower at all, in that same passage where it talks about that after the 69th week, in that in-between, uh, the people of the one who is to come will destroy Jerusalem. He understands that to be Rome destroying Jerusalem in 70 AD, just like Christians do. But he doesn't see any of the other stuff dealing with Jesus whatsoever. Anything else? I see one more. We got this will be the last one. If you got another question, you can come up afterwards. I was just uh, curious is um, where the Lord has led you after Daniel to work on the next kind of series, maybe revelation. I'm just maybe curious. revelation? Are you wanting a revelation series? <laughs> I won't tell you. You have to come Sunday and find out. <laughs> but there is somebody in the room who knows because I ran into them and their kids at the bookstore the other day, and they saw what books I had in my hand to grab a couple extra commentaries. So it's not a total secret, but um, it'll be good. It'll it'll be it'll be a unique thing we're doing. Uh, that, that is especially relevant given the fact that we, we are entering a unique season as a church because we're getting to celebrate 50 years of God's faithfulness with the idea of being we need to allow God to really examine us as individuals and as a church. Are we where he wants us to be right now? So that we relay ourselves before his feet for the next 50 years. And obviously beyond. It's not just we're not just gonna literally say, God use us for the next fifty years, but you get you catch my drift. I'm trying to be poetic a little bit. So But you won't be disappointed Sunday, I promise you that. And and it's not gonna be a book you've never heard of. It's not it's not Hezekiah. So anyways, all right. I uh, appreciate you, church family. If you've got other questions, feel free to let me know. I hope this, the, the, the other backside of that, lessons from Daniel, that was, that was in case I, we moved quicker than we did and we didn't. So um, those are just great. That's, I, I reworded them a little bit in my own language, but those are from a, a writer named Warren Wiersbe, uh who um, has a commentary on Daniel, but at the end of it, he just kind of gave this reflection of 10 character qualities you see clearly throughout the book of Daniel, exemplified in his life. And uh, they're just really good. So we were going to cover that, but we're not now. So I appreciate you, love you, and uh, we will uh, see you Sunday for a wonderful time of worship. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is exact. God, the sad reality is there should have been people waiting for you, Jesus, when you showed up. The flip side is we have the full canon of your word on the other side of your death and resurrection. And Holy Spirit, you live within us. And how many times do you show up and you find none of us there waiting? So Lord, may we not for a second, we're saved. If genuinely we've placed our faith in you, you you, you save the one who cries out. But may, may we not for a second entertain a hint of arrogance that somehow thinks we are above making the same mistake. But instead, Lord, may you find us ready, waiting, and humble to meet you where you are at, to follow you where you lead us, because Jesus, you are worthy, you are sovereign, you are faithful and true. You love us too much to harm us, you're too wise to mislead us. Lord, we can trust you completely. So, Lord, may we heed your word. Or maybe better put, may we heed you at your word. And may you find us faithful by your power and grace. It's in your name we pray, Jesus, and it's to you we look. Amen.